This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Today's program is going to be a little bit different than our usual fare. Well, actually, it is our usual fare. But we're going to get to it in an unusual way. This correspondent is feeling quite inspired having seen the movie The Big Short. I'd like to offer up the opinion that this is a very good film. It's inspired me to pick up the book. And as is so often the case, if the movie is the frosting, well then, you know, the book is the cake. In this case, maybe the cake and the ice cream. Michael Lewis is a hell of a good writer, and what he's put down in print, well, it's it's just you can put more things down there than you can, even in a, you know, couple-hour-long movie. That said, the movie succeeds surprisingly well in capturing, I think, the essence of what uh, what the story in the book is, which is to say that things went nuts on Wall Street. I mean, really nuts. People did not know what they were doing. Greed took over. Sense was tossed out the window, and that's why we had this great economic crash back in 07, 08, which we're still trying to climb out of. Now, we do have to confess that to talk about collateralized debt obligations and whatever, uh, that, that's we're over our head on this. We've tried to quote from Matt Taibbi some Rolling Stone pieces on this very topic in the past, and we want to do it properly. That will not happen today, uh, but maybe the week after next, we may bring uh, Bob Dunham, our resident financial expert, back on who said he lived this to talk about Wall Street chicanery. Now, we find ourselves a bit pressed for time, so we're going to skip all the usual stuff we do at the start of the program so that we can replay for you a couple of memorable previous chats we've had. First off with David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com. We spoke to him about uh, not only his book on the Kennedy brothers, titled Brothers, but relative to today, his book on General Smedley Butler, a name that should be known to all Americans, but is known to very few people. And the Wall Street connection to Smedley Butler, and and there certainly is one, is that certain powerful interests at the beginning of the Roosevelt administration decided they were going to pretty much topple FDR from the presidency. And Smedley Butler was the guy they chose to make that plot go forward. Unfortunately for the plotters, Butler turned around and blew the whistle on them. So before we talk about Michael Lewis and the big short in the weeks to come. Let's go back in time and talk about Smedley Butler, not just what happened in the 30s, but what happened even at the turn of the century, the 20th century, that is, when Butler took actions which he basically later described as being a bill collector for Wall Street interests. He was referring to such things as going into Nicaragua and arranging elections and going into the Dominican Republic to bill collect. David spoke to us for over a half hour on that most interesting subject, which was his his book titled Devil Dog. And long before that, back in 2004, we spoke with film documentarian Alex Gibney about his then new documentary, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. That was nominated back in 2005 for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. You may have seen, dear listener, some of his other excellent documentaries like We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, or... Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, which won three Emmys last year. In our third segment today, we're going to re-air that chat with Alex Gibney. Because we only have something like 58 minutes to work with, we're going to break off shortly and revisit our interview with David Talbot. 
But you know what? We can't quite resist the whole quip, quote, joke thing. So, so since we're talking about economics today, in a way, um, we'll use three statements from John Kenneth Galbraith. I think all of these have some application to today's topic. First, the salary of the chief executive of a large corporation is not a market award for achievement. It is frequently in the nature of a warm, personal gesture by the individual to himself. I think that'll do as a quip. And for our joke, we'll use this from J.K. Galbraith. There are two classes of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. All right, at this point, let's go back and uh, re-air the chat we had with David Talbot. The remarkable story of U.S. Marine Corps General Smedley Butler is not well known to most Americans, although he was a first-hand witness to one of the most curious episodes in U.S. history. Although General Butler was a soldier's soldier, he was twice awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, his experiences in military engagements around the world led him to conclude that war was a con game led by those who profit from it. In our opinion, his anti-war classic, War is a Racket, should be on your bookshelf. For the full story of General Butler, and the full story is something one should study because, as we say, he was an eyewitness to a truly remarkable incident in presidential politics, there is another book you will want to read. David Talbot has taken the story of Smedley Butler and turned it into his book, Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America. Mr. Talbot's the founder of Salon.com. His previous work, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, was something we were pleased to chat them about a few years ago. Brothers unveiled the fascinating history of the relationship between JFK and Brother Robert and why Bobby Kennedy believed his brother Jack had fallen victim to conspiracy. Mr. Talbot returns to a hidden story of presidential intrigues with Devil Dog. We're keen to discuss it with him and pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, David Talbot. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. Devil Dog is an unusual book, David. It's extensively illustrated in a sort of a comic style, a graphic art by Spain Rodriguez. And I have to ask, what led you to approach the story of Butler in this, this colorful style? Well, you know, I have uh, uh, sons who are uh, one's 20, one's 17, and they're like all their generation. And hey, to tell you the truth, my generation too, baby boomers, are very visually oriented. And I had written uh, standard history books. I'd written, uh, as you said, Brothers, a story about the Kennedys. And uh, my son's never read that. And I thought, hey, if I present this story in a kind of more colorful way with, as you say, lots of illustrations and photographs and old maps and make history come alive that way, maybe I have a shot at getting my sons, my own sons, to read my work. And it seems to have worked. They love it, and uh, I think it does resonate particularly with the young readership, although I have to say I didn't write down. I, I mean, I wrote just the way I write for a general audience. Um, no pandering, but the story itself is so action-packed that I think it really pulls readers in. Well, the book starts out with America getting involved in projecting its power across the world at the time of William McKinley. At this time, Smedley Butler was a teenager in the Marine Corps, and your book opens with him in China during the time of what's called the Boxer Rebellion. Can we talk a bit about what was going on there and how U.S. forces, including Butler, got involved? The Boxer Rebellion was a nationalist uprising against the foreigners' uh, control of the Chinese economy, and uh, European powers in particular had an iron grip 
on China in those years. This is we're talking about the late 19th century, early 20th century. And finally, there was an uprising of uh, a group known as the Boxers. They were kind of a martial arts group, uh, hence the name. And some people thought they had mystical powers, that they could uh, take a bullet and not be killed. And uh, they got support from some elements within the Chinese royal court and uh, began to target uh, foreigners, missionaries, and others who they felt were exploiting their country and had no right to be in their country. And as a result of this, and uh, at one point the boxers actually laid siege to Peking, as it was called then, the capital, Beijing, uh, where the foreign uh, diplomatic missions were housed. And as a res- in response to this, the full might of uh, imperial nations across the world, particularly Europe and America, sent armies and descended on China and to lift the siege around Beijing and to reestablish Western control over China, which they did. Now, Smedley Butler was just a kid at the time, but he was a young lieutenant. He was 18. He joined the Marines at the age of 16. And this kind of imperial mission, as you say, marked the beginning, really, of the rise of the young American empire. And, of course, that was solidified with the Spanish-American War, in which we took control of Cuba and the Philippines. And it was a very controversial war in the United States, and Mark Twain and others led a very impassioned crusade against America's rising role as, a, as, a, as an empire. Smedley Butler was very much, though, a gung-ho part of that as a young soldier, a young Marine, and was very brave, took a couple bullets in China, but lived. And, uh, but then we follow his progress after that, and uh, he begins to evolve. It sounds like he had some doubts about what he witnessed there, with, of course, the Western powers sort of tripping over themselves as to who could grab the most loot. Yeah, it was a looting of China. Uh, there was, you know, mass rapes. There was atrocities. Any time, as we've seen to the present day in Afghanistan and Iraq, when uh, a powerful nation invades another, there's going to be military atrocities. Uh, soldiers are under enormous pressure. Uh, they have uh, a country at its feet. And all too often, human nature takes over, and uh, there are terrible abuses of the, of the native populations. And that's exactly what happened in China. Americans engaged in this, but I would say Japan and some of the European powers, including Germany, were even more to blame for some of the terrible things that were done to the Chinese people. Um, but, but, yes, Butler does begin to have some doubts about this as a young soldier, as a young Marine lieutenant. But he really doesn't begin to change his thinking about America's role as a, as a, as a global force uh, in, until some of his later campaigns in, in Latin America. Yeah, well, the book moves from, from China to, to Central America. The U.S. was projecting power into that part of the world, and, and, and Butler was kind of at the center of things and what was going on in Nicaragua. Well, he actually became sort of the face for America's military adventurism throughout Latin America, and as you say, yes, in Nicaragua, putting down uh, nationalist uprisings there, uh, and in uh, Panama and Mexico, and then finally in Haiti. And in fact, he becomes the head of the U.S. occupation, the top policeman, so to speak, uh, in Haiti. And that country, uh, un- under U.S. occupation, this is now, we're talking about 1915, uh, when he was in charge of the occupation there, uh, up till World War One, uh, and there were again terrible atrocities. There were uh, villages uh, 
pillaged and destroyed, just like we saw later in Vietnam, people pressed into uh, forced labor camps and so on. The atrocities in Haiti actually became the subject of a very harrowing uh, Senate investigation in the 1920s where Butler was forced to testify. He himself was not uh, as responsible for some of the worst atrocities that the U.S. soldiers committed as some other uh, military officials, but he certainly had blood on his hands. And again, this is part of Butler's evolution, because you start to see letters that he's writing home to his father, who was actually a powerful Republican congressman, and to other family members, and starting to say things like, you know, why are my soldiers fighting and dying for Wall Street banks? Because that's why we're really here in Haiti. We're uh, taking over the economy here for, for Wall Street. And he said the same thing about U.S. involvement in Nicaragua, where he actually was in charge of the fraudulent elections there um, that the Marines presided over. So he's seeing the ugly side of empire more and more. In fact, he's the main guy who's seeing this because he's in charge of enforcing that empire. And Smedley Butler does have a soul. He has his conscience. This is not why he signed up to uh, fight for his country. And he begins to have, I think... A, a very interesting uh, transformation. Well, he uh, was denied the access to, to, to combat troops in Europe when we got involved in World War I. Uh, I guess they decided by this point he was a talented organizer and the troops loved him for standing, uh, standing with them. And, and I, I gather from your book he, he distinguished himself by saving a lot of lives there by building some proper facilities for men that were sent over there. Yes, actually, most of the casualties that America suffered in that war were, of course, to disease and uh, other non-combat-related uh, uh, suffering. It, particularly in the beginning uh, of that uh, of our involvement in World War One, when our soldiers uh, actually uh, were going over uh, the Atlantic, and and many of them were stricken with the flu. There, of course, was a terrible international flu epidemic at the time. And so, in fact, the transport ship that Butler himself was on with the uh, 13th Marine Regiment, the Hoodoo Regiment, as it was called, it was terribly hit by illness on the way over, and he himself fell ill, and many of the soldiers died on their way over. So when they arrived in France on the soggy, foggy coast of, of Brittany, it was a miserable sight that he beheld. It was... Uh, a camp that had been built for uh, 1,200 people now has 60,000, some 60,000 soldiers. They were in the mud. They were sick and suffering. And Smedley Butler threw himself into uh, making things right for his boys, the doughboys, with all his might. And he, he expropriated from military warehouses uh, what was called duckboard, the wooden slats, uh, that they lined the bottom of trenches with, so the soldiers would be literally up out of the mud. He built housing for them. He brought in medical facilities, even an ice cream factory and entertainment. And he turned around the rates of uh, disease and death uh, in the camps that it really was uh, laying waste to the American soldiers in Europe. And uh, he was given, you know, a medal and great honors for this. But he, he was frustrated. He never got to go to the front himself and see action himself because he was a real gung-ho character. But he was in a, a very unique position to see what the war was doing to these young men as they came back from the front lines on the Western Front. 
and they were flowing back through his camp, back to America, and the shell shock and the horrible disfiguring uh, and the terrible wounds of these men. And later he went back in the United States, made it a point, even though this wasn't his official responsibility, to visit veterans' hospitals all around the country to see how these poor casualties of World War I were being treated. And they were being treated horribly, he said, like animals. And from that point on, I think Butler has an amazing epiphany and decides that most of the wars he's been, in, he's been in have not been for Uncle Sam or for his country, but for, as he put it, Standard Oil Company and Wall Street. And these young men are, were chewed up by these wars and then thrown away by the country, and he is appalled at this. And so he devotes the rest of his life to crusading for, for veterans' rights and for peace. All right, we need to take a short break, so let's, uh, let's stop our interview with Mr. Talbot for a moment. And note that I'm Douglas Everett, this is Radio Parallax, and we will resume after a break. Mm-hmm. 